0: It's so good to be here with you. It's so good to be here. I, I, if you're the type likes following an actual Bible, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians uh, to start with. And, um, you know, normally um, when, when I come, I, I, I come as a Bible teacher, right? And, that's that, and, and I'm going to teach some of the Bible Tonight, but tonight I'm primarily coming um, as a psychologist. All right, so I'm going to put on that hat uh, tonight. And so so if you're, because I want to speak right into your relationship, marriage, sex uh, series. And, And if you're thinking, if you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm pretty sure you're single, right? I'm pretty sure you're single. What in the world could you tell me about relationship, sex, marriage? Okay, first of all, let's handle that real quick, okay? I have a master's degree in clinical, psychologist, in clinical psychology with an emphasis in marriage and sex, all right? This sounds like I'm making a joke, but I've got a master's degree in sex, okay? So in theory, no one's better than me at that, all right? Now in practice, pretty much crap, but in theory, <laughs> In theory, I sort of got it going on with that. That's that's number one. So actually, this topic tonight is actually the topic I'm academically qualified to speak to. Actually, more than Bible stuff. All right. So so I'm actually that. The second thing is is that um, almost all relational advice in the Bible is by single men. All right. <laughs> <laughs> or a guy with a thousand wives, whichever one. Right. 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 So, so if you're looking for that one monogamous white dude to tell us what to do, it's sort of not in the scripture either. All right. So we're all in this journey uh, together, uh, marriage, relationships, things like this, sexuality, very complicated. It's not like simple. It's not like somebody So like this is very simple, very cookie cutter way to look at it. it. This is a, this is a process by which we all sort of grow. We all come from certain backgrounds, certain biases. We have certain imaginations. When, when I say certain words, the issue isn't those words. It's all the different imaginations around what those words mean. And so I want to I deal with that. Uh, let, let's start by looking at something, uh, a first century rabbi named Paul. He, um, he gave us as, as advice. This is um, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 25. He says, husbands, uh, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her uh, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, uh, you ought to love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. Then skipping forward a few verses in verse 33. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Now, the, the, the issue with this language is that it's obvious. That's the problem. Like for Paul to go, hey guys, seriously, Love your wives. No one can go, no, we need less love, right? No, that's obvious. We need to be loving our wives. That's that's an obvious piece of advice. And if I was to say, hey, girl, seriously, hey, it is a good idea to respect your husband. That's a really good plan. No one can go. No, we actually need disrespect. More disrespect would make us happy in our lives. Nobody, nobody can say that. That is not the issue with this passage. The issue with this passage is when I say, guys, come on, love your wives, right? Here's the problem with that, right? However many hundreds of men are in this room right now, there's that many different imaginations as to what I mean when I say love. And so the problem isn't the doctrine of love. The problem is, is our imagination of what that looks like because our emotions attached to that. So what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about love and I want to give a good working definition of love. And then I want to look at what scientific studies have shown that women almost unanimously interpret as actions of love. And hopefully we can then reinvigorate, not the doctrine, but the imagination of what that looks like lived out. And I also want to do that with respect, because here's the problem. When I say, hey, girls, seriously, hey, come on, hey, seriously, girls, Your best life is found in choosing to respect the guy you chose to spend the rest of your life with. It is. Happiness in the home is going to increase if he feels respected instead of disrespected by you. No one can disagree with that. No one can go, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think that's true. No, here's the problem. The problem is for how many hundreds of women are in this room right now, when I say respect, there's hundreds of different imaginations of what respect looks like. So to one, it might look like admiration. To another, it might look like being subjugated. To another, it might, be, it might sound like I'm saying, let him squash you. And so the, the problem isn't the doctrine of respect. It's not. Everybody wants to do that. The problem is, is, is the unworkable imaginations of what that looks like. So my attempt in the next 40 minutes or so is to give us a better working imagination of what that looks like from the scriptures, from experience, and from science, all right? So I'm gonna take that role as sort of a clinician. So let's talk about love first, next slide. So love is a tension between a few factors. One is the perfect versus the sublime. I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Let me give you all three. The second is the idol versus the icon. And the third is the destination versus the cause. Now let's let's talk through those things really quickly. Love is not a function by which we celebrate the perfection in somebody else. Love is a function by which we acknowledge their flaws and embrace them anyway. I I, I love the way Jacques Lacan said it. If you listen to this very carefully, it's very profound. Here's what he says. Love is giving somebody else something you don't have and they don't want it. That's what love is. In other words, love is not when you only present your best side, they embrace that only to encounter your flaws later. Love is when you're perfectly honest about yourself, flaws and all, and they acknowledge those flaws, but they choose to embrace you anyway. Love, that is the safest place on earth, to be fully known and fully accepted. Like like there are a lot of people who are fully accepted, but the only reason they're fully accepted is because they're not fully known. And there's a lot of people who are fully known, but because they're fully known, they're not fully accepted. The safest place on earth is to be fully known with no secrets and fully accepted all at the same time. That is the power of the risen Christ and his role in his relationship with us is that in that moment, we can be fully known. And although we're fully known, we are still fully accepted. That is a safe pad of love. Listen, if you're single, I want you to listen to me real quick, okay? If you're dating someone, and they're perfect, leave. (laughs) They're lying or you're deceived. There is no such thing. Right? Never, what you're experiencing is a psychological phenomenon called limerence. Limerence is an involuntary rush of dopamine in your brain when you're in the presence of somebody and it makes you addicted to their presence and blind to their character flaws. When the limerence wears off in about five years time, the thing that's always been true about them is going to irritate you to high heaven. So, never ever ever move forward with somebody until you can clearly articulate their flaw and choose to embrace that anyway. Right? Perfect versus sublime. Idol versus icon. Uh, Love is not a celebration of the idol. Let, Let me explain what I mean by that. An idol is when you create an image of something that you want somebody to be and then you force them to be that. That's idolatry. Now, let me explain why that's powerful. That's powerful because at first, it will feel good to the other person for you to put them on a pedestal. It will, it's flattering. It's like, hey, I've got my list you meet all these qualifications. This is what I want in a man. You seem to meet that. Let me put you up there. That is flattering or, it, or vice versa. You're everything I could ever imagine wanting in a woman. Let me lift you high and you can become what I relationally bow to. Now, at first, that is very flattering. People will love that about you. They'll love it until they reach the point where they cannot handle that pressure one more day. There is no vacancy in the Trinity for a human being. There isn't. There isn't. People are not wired to wear the weight of idolatry. We're wired to embrace the beauty of iconography. Now, idolatry is when we create an image of somebody and we make them bow. We make them be that. We set them there. An icon is far more beautiful. An icon is not an idol. An icon is an image of something that invites us to continue to go deeper it's that. In in other words, love is not a celebration of what we have established we want in that person. Love is a celebration of there's something about that person that makes me want to keep going with them. Listen, the best marriages on earth are not the ones who go, we've been together 30 years. We know everything about each other. The best marriages on earth are the ones that are going, hey, we've been together 25 years. I still don't have a flipping clue what makes her tick, but I know I love it. It's that. It's that. That's exciting. That's that. That's, that's an infinite, eternal journey. The, the, the third tension in love is destination or cause. All the joy in life is found in the journey of getting to a destination, not in the arrival at the destination itself. It's true of everything. It's more fun to shop for a car than it is to actually go buy one. It's more fun to dream about the house than it is to actually sign on the dotted line about one. It's more fun to journey to something than it is to arrive at that journey. So relationally, we have to make sure when we talk about love that we're not talking about a a celebration of the perfect, but rather a celebration of the sublime. We're not talking about a celebration of the idol. We're talking about a celebration of the icon. And we're talking about people that in flaws and all, Fully known, fully accepted, they enjoy every part of the journey together, knowing that all the joy is in the journey, not in the arrival at some destination. That's what we talk about when we talk about love. So a couple observations about this. Next slide. So with love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningful. Like you can have nothing, but if you have love, your entire world is actually meaningful. But without love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningless, Like, you can have lots of stuff. You could be Batman in the Batcave with all the toys, but if you're alone, your world is sort of meaningless. With love, you can't help but experience the world as meaningful. Without love, you can have everything and not help but experience the world as meaningless. And God is sort of that way because God is love. So in that sense, God is not someone you love as much as someone you find his presence in the act of love itself. That when we talk about relationships, when we do something for someone with zero expectation of return to pay us back, it is in that very action that we begin to touch something of the presence of God. For that is what God did for the world. God, with no expectation of return, while we were acting hostile, God acted with love toward the world. So when we act with love toward the other with no expectation of any retribution or payback, in other words, we're not keeping score. When we do that, it is in that moment that we find something beautiful about the presence of God in the middle of the act of love itself that actually when we talk about relationships and love it is one of the key ways that we experience the presence of God when you by faith meet someone else's need with no expectation and scorekeeping of them meeting your need in return it is in that moment that we begin to find the presence of very God himself let's say it this way that marriage is not a static image let's say it this way marriage is ultimately next slide is ultimately a dynamic progressive revelation of who God is to the world around you. That what your marriage and your relationship evolves into ultimately is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of what people in the world understand about God. It is a beautiful, beautiful metaphor and thing. Now, a couple of observations about what this means when we wake up tomorrow and need to live some of this stuff out. Next slide. Number one, the best way to motivate anyone is to meet their biggest need. Two words, very important. Consistently and predictably. If you want to motivate someone else, the best way to motivate anybody is to be consistent and predictable in meeting their biggest need. That is the best way to motivate anybody. If you want to try to control somebody, you'd be purposely inconsistent. Inconsistent, unpredictable need meeting raises anxiety in the home. But predictable, consistent need meeting lowers anxiety in the home and raises trust. When things, even when need meeting is inconsistent and unpredictable, it raises anxiety and lowers trust. But when need meeting is predictable and consistent. It raises trust and lowers anxiety and motivates the other person. If you wanna motivate the other person, the best way to do that is to meet their needs, not demand yours. It's to meet their needs consistently and predictably. Let's, let's say it this way. Next, next slide. To the extent we're trying to control someone is the extent that you're failing to love them. To the extent we're trying to control them is the extent that we're failing to love them. Let's say it another way. Next slide. You never choose to meet your spouse's need because they deserve it. You choose to meet their need because they're worth it to you. You don't meet people's needs because they deserve it. We meet people's needs because we determine them to be worth it. Why? Because Jesus said that's what God is like. He says, you wanna know what God's like? Look at flowers, look at birds. They do nothing to deserve it, but God feeds them and clothes them because they're worth it. To him, If we're going to show the world what God is like in our love, then we need to meet people's needs, not because they're worth it, not because they deserve it, but because we deem that they're worth it. Can we give our spouse or the person we're in a relationship with the gift of meeting their needs, whether they deserve it or not? It will, you might have, listen, this is so true. You might have the right to withhold their need. You do. It's your body. It's your mind. It's your words. You might have the right to withhold their need, but it won't be the most profitable thing for us to do. If we want to live with high trust, low anxiety, consistent and predictable need meeting is at the center of that. Number three, you can never, next slide, yep. You can never motivate someone long-term by withholding or controlling their biggest need. It is empowering to you to meet their need first, right? Listen, ladies, listen, if you're married, listen. You will never, I I realize that in general, a woman's goal is to increase feelings of love in the home. I get it, I do. But I also get that you'll never be successful in increasing loving feelings towards you if you're withholding sex from him and calling him an idiot. It does not work. Is it your right? Absolutely, it's your body. is, Is it your right? Sure, is it wise? Probably not. Is it your right to call him an idiot when he does something dumb? Sure, it's your right. But just because it's your right, and maybe you're even right about it, in that moment, he might have done something dumb. But it's not wise. It's not profitable. And Christian people don't base their life solely on right or wrong, but rather something more profound. What is wise? What is the wise Thing to do, And it's always empowering to meet their need first. Next slide, number four. In general, a female's biggest need is to increase feelings of love. And, and with that being said, it's not in a woman's nature to respond sexually to a man who's harsh and angry with her. It's just not. And number five, next slide. In general, the male's biggest need is to increase feelings of respect. And it's not within a man's nature to respond lovingly to a woman who's sarcastic, critical, or has contempt for his person, intelligence, or sexuality. It's just not in us to do that. It's just not in us. In general, these are stereotypes, but they're stereotypes for a reason. A man's biggest need is to increase feelings of respect in the home. When feelings of respect in the home go up, anxiety goes down. A woman in general, her biggest need is to increase feelings of love in the home. When feelings of love are perceived high, anxiety goes down, trust goes up. It is a beneficial situation. Let me give you an example of this. Next slide. So women in general say, I need to feel loved and treasured even if I look different. A man would say, I need to feel respected and admired even if I do something stupid. That is the idea. The idea is we don't, we, we don't meet each other's needs because we deserve it. We meet each other's needs because we deem them worth it. A couple of questions about this. Next slide. Is it okay for your spouse to have a different need than you? Your husband needs respect as much as you need love. And that's got to be okay. And she needs love as much as you need respect. Let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me speak to the ladies just for a second. I promise I'll do, I will do at least 50-50 speaking to men and women. Okay, I don't want half the room turning on me. Okay? But but let me me speak to you ladies just for a second, okay? And this is for good-hearted women. If you're not a good-hearted woman, don't worry. There's nothing I can do for you anyway. But listen, if you're a good-hearted, basically mentally healthy person, and you've been frustrated, and your thought is, I don't know what's going on with my husband. I love him and 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 I love and I do more to love him and I love him and I love him and I love him and he just doesn't seem happy with that. Let me let me see if I can help you, okay? And this might sound a little harsh, but I don't mean it harsh. I mean it to help. Your husband doesn't care if you love him. He already knows you love him. It's not even it. Thank you. It's not even in his top 15 questions. Your husband's deepest concern is whether or not you believe in him or not. Your husband's deepest desire. And here's the thing, he doesn't, let me, let me let you in on this, okay? Ready? Don't tell anybody, right? This is a secret. He doesn't know how to tell you that. Because if he tells you that, it makes him look weaker. Which then makes him question whether you believe in him even more. Listen, if you want to increase feelings of trust in your home and your lady, listen to me. For the next 60 days, remove all love language. Remove all I love you. Hi schnookums, (laughs) hi doll. Remove all that. And anytime you wanna say something like that, replace it with, I believe in you, I honor you, I respect you, I think you're smart. Things like this. It it, it goes to the biggest, deepest question of man. Listen, a man has two big questions. One, do you believe in me? And two, do you perceive me as having enough to make you happy compared to what other guys have is that right i don't know is it wrong i don't know i know it just is it just it just is that's the man's biggest concern let me give you an example right like if you're if you're out if you're out on a date right in auckland at um, white and wongs <laughs> right and you're out on this date, right? And the hottest girl in Auckland walks in. And I mean like, woo, yah, right? Now, when the hottest girl in Auckland walks in, who notices first, the women or the men? No, the women. Of course the women notice first, and they hate her. Like, we hate you. You don't even know that person, but we hate you, right? Now, if the, if the hottest girl in Auckland walks in, and you really notice her, you're gonna hurt your wife's feelings. Like if you're like, whoa, yeah, get you some of that, right? Don't do that, you're gonna hurt her feelings, right? Now, here's the thing, right? Here's the reason why. Because a woman's biggest thing is, do you still love me and find me attractive even though I'm changing and this and that, right, right? But here's the thing, men, the reason men don't get stuff like that is we don't care if you notice the hot guy. If the hottest guy in Auckland walks into White and Wong's, we don't care if you notice. I'm talking about like the underwear model, you know? I'm talking like, right? Right? Like eight-pack guy. If he walks in and you go, Woo! Yeah! Get you some of that. We don't really care about that. We don't care. We're like, well, I don't know. Look, just get preheated. You're coming home with me. I don't know. That's all right. (laughs) Sir, can you come here and show her your abs? I don't know. Right? True. But if in that same scenario, if you said to your husband, hey, did you hear about Bill? He got promoted three times this year. He now makes three times as much money as you. I so wish you were as successful as Bill. (laughs) Woo, see, see? The issue really isn't understanding it as much as it is to realize we all already understand it and then behave accordingly. I, I owe a lot of this talk to the Apostle Paul, to Solomon, to Emerson Egricks, who's a, who's a great, great communicator on marriage, um, and, and to the University of Washington for their study in marriage and disasters. I owe this next part to Emerson Egricks. He, he gave us something called the crazy cycle. He came up with this. This was brilliant. Next slide. So, so here's what he says. Without love, she will always respond without respect. And without respect, he'll tend to respond without love. And without love, she'll respond without respect without respect he's going to respond without love and that's the crazy cycle and around and around and around we go and that leads to escalation this is why have you ever have you ever had an argument with your spouse that started about how to cut a tomato and before you knew it you were insulting each other's parents <laughs> right right <laughs> and then some point you're what how do we get here that's why that's why without love she responds without respect without respect He'll respond without love. But then there's a better choice. There's the energizing cycle. Next slide. So with love, she'll tend to respond with respect. And with respect, he'll respond with love. The, the question is, is how do we get on that energizing cycle? Because once again, the issue isn't love. Everybody wants to love. The issue is what do we picture that to be? And the issue isn't respect. If you're, listen, everything I'm going to say in the next few minutes assumes basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy people. If you married a lunatic, I don't know what to do, okay? But assuming you didn't marry a lunatic, you married a basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy person. This is what the University of Washington um, in in their intensive research on marriage, this is what they showed. They gave us six things that basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy women will always interpret as love. And six things that basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy men will tend to interpret as respect and I have time to do three of each, okay? So instead of doing six, I'm gonna do three, and, and I'll try to, you know, to, to be succinct with it. No, 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 next slide, number one. The, how to make a good-hearted woman feel loved. So this is concrete behavior that we can implement. Number one, what the research showed is that, we can see, that a woman will feel loved when we consistently and predictably empathize with her. See, see women in, in, their, in, in their emotions, they need to report and recognize their emotions. Men don't tend to need to do that. And when we interpret each other through how we are, see, we don't tend to see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so, and so when we don't see that and we don't empathize with it, we tend to say things like, what's wrong with you? Just get over it. Well, they, they can't, it, it, sh- should they? Maybe, but that, that, that's not wise, right? It, but, but, but the very thing that irritates you in terms of that with your wife is actually what will make her a good mother. Right? And so we tend to forget that the very thing that makes women good mothers and makes us not good mothers is the very thing that will irritate us in interpersonal communication. So you got to focus on the right thing, right? This is why, think about it this way. Like, if you have three kids, okay, and let's say you're having a, a, a night on Netflix, you're finally relaxing, and then you, and you hear the three kids going nuts in the back, and some, you're like, please don't call me, please don't call me, please don't call me, right? And somebody finally, mama! dad, something like that. Now, if the dad goes in there, it's going to be fundamentally different than if the mom does, right? So if the dad walks in and says, shut up, what happened? And all three kids start talking at once. His brain can't handle that. If all three kids start talking at once, he'll be like, shut up. You and only you go. Right. Yo. Right, and then he'll do it. The mom can walk into the same situation, all three kids talk at once, and her decipher it all and solve it. Right? It's fundamentally different. This is why, if you're ever out at a dinner party, right? And every man's experienced this. If you're ever out at a dinner party, women can have more than one conversation at a time. Men absolutely cannot. This is why you're ever at a dinner party, and you're over, and you're talking with your friends, your wife can be 20 feet away And they ask you a question here. And you're like, oh, what was that guy's name? What was that guy's name? I can't think of his name. And your wife will scream from across the room. His name was Bill. It was Bill. This is why you're like, how did you do that? Right? Right? This is why you men will understand this, right? Have you ever been riding down the road and somebody calls you and you got the Bluetooth in your ear and you're trying to think and she's trying to remind you of something to say to them? And I promise you, everything goes like Charlie. Right? 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 These things are the strength of the woman and actually the weakness of the man. But it requires us to empathize through complex sort of reporting. And what the research shows is that basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy women will interpret that as loving behavior. Um, let um, let, Let me give you an example of that. Next slide. So here's just a great concrete example that we could put into practice. Men, do you need me to help you solve this or do you, want, do you just want me to listen? Because see, here's the problem. Men, if they can't solve the problem, feel like a failure and then wonder if you still respect them. So it becomes a complex thing that starts circling on each other. So when, ladies, you can set your man free by setting him free from having to solve the problem because trust me, he's trying to think of a way to solve the problem. You could also help us by not spider webbing Spider webbing is when you mix four or more stories into one. <laughs> Let me just help you. We can't follow it. And, 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 and it's, not, it's not for any other reason other than you're smarter than us. It's fine. It's fine. And it's actually the thing that you'll like about us. I'll talk to you about that in, in a second. Now, number two, what the research shows, if you a good-hearted, basically mentally healthy lady, will will find it loving when we consistently and predictably assure her that you treasure her above all else. Now, for us, that makes no sense. let me explain something to you ladies, okay? For your man to do this requires great faith because it feels embarrassing. It feels like, oh man. But once you realize that it's okay for them to have a need that you don't have, and we can by faith meet that need without understanding it or expecting in return, here's what the research shows. A woman will in general feel treasured by you when you reminisce about a story from your past. So if you're driving by somewhere, say, hey, remember when we went there? That's all it takes. That's all it takes. They have, my grandmother died in a nursing home at 92, and she still had love cards from my grandfather from 60 years ago. That's how it works. Now, my grandfather wouldn't remember writing those things, but that's that's how it works. Now, men, we don't understand that. Like, you'll never see two men sitting at a coffee shop going, Hey, Harry, you remember that tux I wore at your wedding? No way. No, there is no way we do that. But what the studies show is that ladies find that loving when we reminisce about some story from our past, right? Number three, uh, here's a good marriage tool on this. Men, um, next slide. I I remember when we were at this and this happened, right? Now, Now, the thing the ladies can do to help us with that is to give us gentle reminders to remove fear, if we, if we get it wrong, still applaud the effort, because it's not natural for a man to do this, right? right? And if a man feels like you're going to call him an idiot, if he gets one detail wrong, he's not going to try, right? So, so set us free by reminding us and removing some fear. No, number three, next slide. What the studies show is that a good-hearted, basically mentally healthy lady will, will, will interpret it as love when we consistently and predictably reconcile and resolve with her. In other words, do not be secretly angry with her. Here's how the studies show that women, um, in general, solve conflict. Here is the conflict resolution cycle for women. Women have conflict, then they storm off, then they come back together, then they vent, then they make apologies, then they make jokes, then they laugh, then they start over. It's full circle. (sighs) It's true, right? This this, This is how men resolve conflict. Men resolve conflict by letting it go. Here's how it works. Men have conflict. They storm off. Then there's a cool off period. You will never see two men storming off and the other man going, Harry, you get back here right now and speak to me. Never, never, never. Then there's some attempt to make restitution. Then we drop it. And then they're like, hey, here's a soda and a game. So here's the problem with that. Men resolve conflict by letting it go. What the studies show is that women have incredibly high anxiety if it doesn't go full circle. Can you imagine these two people, good-hearted, both good-hearted people trying to live together without anxiety? One has less anxiety by letting it go. The other has less anxiety by talking it through. (laughs) Now, what the studies show men is this, is that if you'll step out of your comfort zone a little bit and by faith, by faith talk it through and meet their need that it'll increase trust and decrease anxiety. Here's some marriage tools for that, or relationship tools, next slide. Is men a hug? Reassurance that you're not mad and the relationship is okay can go a long way. And women, a word of reassurance that you believe in him can go a long way in bringing it full circle. In other words, if we talk it through, I promise I'm not gonna insult you. I'm not gonna degrade you. I'm not gonna do uh, these sorts of things. Now, those are three things for the women. Let me do three things for the men, all right? So once again, the issue isn't love, it's our imagination of love. And what the research shows is that when we consistently, particularly empathize, treasure, and solve conflict by going full circle, basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy women will interpret that as love. Now let me show you a couple things that it says about respect. Same same study. How to make a good-hearted man feel respected. One to consistently and predictively verbalize your honor of his responsibility to lead the home. Okay, now let me stop and, and, and speak into this, right? Because feminists will tell you that men feel like they have a right to lead the home. Okay, that is never, ever true if you're talking about a basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy man. A basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy man never thinks about it. I have a right to lead this home. That's not how men think about it. Assuming you married a basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy man, they feel that they carry the weight of the responsibility to lead the home. And that is two different things. To say I have a right to lead and to say I'm carrying the burden of the responsibility to lead, that's two different things. Let me ask you this. If an intruder came in your house tonight and you and your husband are laying in bed, and you know an intruder's in your house with a weapon, would you flip a coin to see who who goes and confronts the guy? (laughs) Whose responsibility is it to die for the family? (laughs) Let's flip a coin. We're 50-50 here, right? And listen, to be willing to die for someone is a big thing. That is not something to just, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Uh-uh. That's a big thing. But let me explain something about the DNA of men. It is in the DNA of men when they get unconditional respect to die. The only place on earth men get unconditional respect is in the military. In the military, you get respect because of the stripe on your arm. That is, and it is unconditional respect. And think about what men do in the military. They serve and they die. And they do it willingly. Right? See, feminists will tell you if you give your husband unconditional respect, he'll squash you. That is never true if he's basically good-hearted, basically mentally healthy. If you, by faith, give your husband unconditional respect, he will serve you and he will die. Think about it. Think about it. If you've ever been on a cruise, right, for vacation, think about it. Before the cruise leave, they do like this disaster drill, right? And they get everybody out. And what announcement? In a disaster drill on a cruise boat, what announcement comes over the loudspeaker? What is it? Women and children first, Right? You'll never see a feminist go, actually, we should flip coins here, right? Never, right? Women and children first. What are the men doing? Yes, we die, right? (laughs) Right, right? Right? (laughs) Listen, listen. God gave us this thing in our DNA that we, we count that an honor. But with that comes the weight of the responsibility of leading the home. And here's what the research shows if you verbalize it with your mouth or in a written form, I honor you for bearing the weight of the responsibility of leading the home. What it shows is, is that men interpret that as respect. Um, let, me give you an ex- uh, let me give you an example. Men, next slide. Men will become indifferent when they hear you're responsible, but I'm in charge. You're responsible, but I'm in charge. Let me give you uh, some tools for that. Next slide. is For women, verbalize or write little statements of admiration. Right. thank you for being willing to die for us, and then sign it with all my respect. Now, for guys, this is not natural language to women, so give them some space and try to see what they're meaning underneath the attempt. Uh, number two, what the research shows is that, is that men will see it as respect acts if, if the woman consistently and predictably initiates to meet his need for sexuality, okay? Now, I'm gonna speak very clinically here. I I assume that's okay, we're all adults. We should be able to say the word sex. We should be able to say the word sperm. We should be able to say things like this because these are natural scientific ways of saying, I will not be crude, but this, this is the fact, okay? You ladies, you are the only legitimate source for sexuality for your husband. Now, that's obvious because think about it, if he seeks sexual gratification anywhere but you, how do you feel about that? You are the only legitimate source for sexuality with your husband. here's the thing, here's the problem with sex, okay? It is really flipping complicated. It's so, there's health, That's a variable. There's drive, there's hormones, there's diabetes, there's blood pressure, there's stress copings, there's fear, there's bias, there's backgrounds, there's traumas, and you're trying to mix all that stuff together. I get it, it is complicated. What's important is not that there's one rule, but that for you, you've come to some same page on it. But this is the basic truth of it, okay? Ready, here's ninth grade anatomy, seventh grade anatomy men carry sperm and the primary role of that sperm is to reproduce and the ha- wow right. the half life of sperm is right at 40 hours which means if men go past 72 hours the sperm in their system is dead and no longer any good for reproduction And it somehow, miraculously, tells their brain that. (laughs) And they get agitated. And everything in their brain is going, hit the eject button, please. Right? So if you're ever wondering, why is my husband acting agitated and funny? Why is he doing push-ups for no reason? (laughs) Just start thinking, hmm... Now, there's no written rule on this, but here's what the research shows, is that when the woman takes the role of initiator in sexuality, it's almost 100% interpreted as an act of belief and respect to the man. Now, is that right? I don't know. Is it wrong? I don't know. I just know that it is. And that's the playing field we play in. And so, this is what the research says. Let me, um, let me give you a marriage tool for this. Next slide. is take the role of initiator of sexuality. You are the only legitimate sexual outlet he has. For men, slow down and be gentle during the day. It is not in her to respond to harshness. The last one I want to talk about that the research showed is this, is that a good-hearted man will feel respected when it is consistently and predictably verbalized your honor for his desire to work, achieve, and provide. In other words, assure him with your mouth that he is enough. Your man's biggest fear is that you perceive him as less than compared to his peers. And that has to do with money, material things, cars, boats, size of houses. It's just in us to compare. Which brings me back to the example at White and Wong's. If the reason that hurts so bad is because when you compare somebody like that to a man, it just doesn't work well. Let me illustrate this uh, by telling you a story. This is a true story about an American heroic pastor named Evie Hill. Evie um, Hill is, a, is an African-American guy. Um, he pastored for something like, flip, 60 years or something. He built one of the biggest churches um, in his area. Um, he's an amazing, amazing guy. And Evie Hill was married to the same woman for 63 years. That which is an amazing feat in and of itself, and um, and unfortunately his wife died before him. So his wife passed away, and he had to do her funeral. All right. And um, now think about that. If you've been married for sixty three years, how much material do you have to draw upon and to honor your wife of sixty three years? The answer would be a lot. It would actually be, it's much harder to decide what to say than what not to say in that situation. Out of all the stories E.V. Hill had to pull on his wife's memory, here's what he said. He said, I stand before you today as the man of God that I am and become solely because of the greatness of this woman. Let me tell you why. He said, when I was young, and first starting out in ministry, I had nothing, nothing. He said, I was working two jobs, trying to get the church started, it was unbelievable. He said, I came home one day after working very, very hard at at his laboring job. He said, I came home and I looked up and she was setting the table with candles. And I thought, oh, she's made me a candlelight dinner. Wow, wow, and he said, I went into the bathroom to wash up because I was disgusting. He said, I went into the bathroom. You know how when you're in your own house, you don't even have to think about it. You know where the light switch is, you know? He said, I, I, I went into the bathroom and I went to flip the light switch and nothing happened. And I went. And he said, after the third one is when the dread hit me and I realized she wasn't making a candlelight dinner. I was too broke to pay the power bill, and the power had been cut off. And she was making candlelight by necessity because the electricity had been cut off. And he said, if I could have stayed in that bathroom till the day I died, I would have. I was so embarrassed. I was so humiliated. I sat, I put the toilet lid down and I just sat on the toilet for a long long time dreading facing her, knowing she thought I was a loser. And finally it just hit me, well, I can't be in here forever. That doesn't make much sense. He said so I thought I just got to face her. And he said with great dread in my heart, I went over to her and I couldn't even look her in the eye. I looked at the ground. And I said I'm so sorry. I'm working as hard as I can, I can't, I just couldn't pay the bill. He said, in that moment, she could have destroyed me. She didn't, she took me by the hand and she lifted my head and she said, hey, hey, listen, there's not a person on this earth that is more right for me than you. And there's not a person on this earth that I believe in right now more than you. We'll deal with the bills tomorrow, but tonight we dine by candlelight and it'll all be okay. And he said, I am who I am because she believed in me when I didn't deserve it. When we give our spouse the gift of believing in them, even if they don't deserve it, it does something to your husband that is nourishing to his soul. Now, let me close this out. Um, Let me give you a marriage tool, ladies, a respect card. Honor in writing, his desire, not necessarily his performance. And uh, men, don't lord that over them. Um, Let me me close this out with five questions. One, One, next slide. How far are you willing to go to get off the crazy cycle? If if your relationship's on the crazy cycle right now, without love, she responds without respect. Without respect, he responds without love. If your life's on the crazy cycle right now, how far are you willing to go to get off of it? It's time to stop that. Somebody's got to act first. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Who moves first? Somebody's got to act first. And the one that will act first will be the one who's most mature. Let's say it this way. Number three, out of today's points, which is your weakest link? Are you willing to fix it? What are two things you could implement this week to do so? What's two things you could do this week to implement some of the things we were just talking about? Number four, if your son married a woman who treats him like you treat your husband, how would you feel? If your son married a woman who treats him like you treat his dad, would you be excited about that? And if not, fix it, because let me help you with that. He's gonna, and it's not because of Oedipus. It's because he thinks you're normal and he will seek out that version of normal when he relates. Last question, next slide. If your daughter married a man who treats her like you treat your wife, how would you feel? If your daughter married a man who treats her like you treat her mother, how would you feel? And if you're not really excited about that, it's time to change something. Why? Because she's gonna. And it's not for any weird reason, it's just she thinks you're normal. So my brothers and sisters of Equippers, may we not just be people on our way to heaven when we die, but may we be people who show the world what our God is like by how our relationships work. May we treat each other not as we deserve, but always as we're worth. May we enhance love and respect. And may we show the world the dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of what it is to know the love of God. Until I see you next time I'm around, everybody, grace and peace. God bless you.